wrestling fans, this is Al Getz welcoming you to another monthly episode of the Charting the Territories podcast. With me, as always, is my co-host, John Boucher. John, how are you? Hello. Happy, uh, happy, happy Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, this uh, Thanksgiving? We, we release episodes the fourth Thursday of every month, and that means that every November, it's a Thanksgiving episode. So wherever you are and whoever you're with, we would like to thank you for lending us your ears. We are very thankful for our loyal listeners. And if you're outside the U.S., um, happy Starcade Month, I guess. Happy Starcade Month. We're actually going to be talking about a little bit about Starcade in this episode uh, early on mm-hmm. in Shit John Bought Me Off eBay. Because you see, guys, I made a boo-boo. <laughs> I accidentally opened one of the items John bought me off eBay uh, instead of waiting to do a live unboxing. But we'll talk about that shortly. I do want to say for, for the bulk of this episode, we're going to be looking at the fourth quarter of 1977 and the third quarter of 1965 in the McGurk Territory, plus the fourth quarter of 1975 in Mid-Atlantic. Now, in 1977, in McGurk Land, Murdoch goes good, Dr. X goes bad, and as for Ray Candy and the Assassin, they just go at it. And in 1965, Don Kent feuds with almost everybody, while Argentina Zuma returns to the U.S. for the first time since 1960. Or does he? We'll talk about Zuma and the most recent episode of my Wrestling History Mysteries podcast discussing him possibly being the masked Mr. Zabo from 1963. Also, when we talk about Mid-Atlantic in the fourth quarter of 1973, several newcomers come in uh, under new booker of George Scott, who was the first push newcomer. Let's just say there will be a spoiler alert later in this podcast. But first, John, we start with shit you bought me off eBay. So uh, just a reminder, every month, John is authorized to spend approximately $50 of my money to send me things off eBay. And sometimes he'll let me know when things might be coming and where they're coming from. And sometimes we just, you know, wait and see when they show up. So normally they come as packages, not necessarily large boxes, but they're in, you know, those those beige or tan style, you know, thicker envelopes, larger envelopes. But I got one piece of mail this month in a traditional standard white, you know, you know, traditional envelope. And it just didn't look like something from eBay. It looked like some, uh, you know, some correspondence uh, to me personally. So I opened it up and Turns out it was one of the things that John bought me off eBay. So, John, I'm going to Starcade. Yeah, you are. Yeah, in 1986, fun. on closed circuit, in Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, uh, well, the first item that we have that John purchased for me off eBay is a ticket. And for you kids that listen to this podcast, this is not, you know, something I saved on my phone. This isn't some, you know, QR code. This is an actual ticket for Starcade 1986. It looks unused. Uh, I mean, it's not ripped. Um, So so not only did someone, you know, pay to go see the closed circuit broadcast of Starcade 1986 at the Cincinnati Gardens, they paid a whole uh, $12 for this ticket and they didn't use it. Night of the Skywalkers, baby. Yeah, the Night of the Skywalkers. This was, of course, Starcade 1986 was Flair versus Nikita, Rock and Roll versus Arn and Oli, 
the scaffold match, the Skywalkers match between the Midnight Express and the Road Warriors, the Tully Blanchard-Dusty Rose first blood match, and, of course, Jimmy Valiant beating Paul Jones in a hair-versus-hair match. Now, why am I mentioning Jimmy Valiant? Well, uh, you should always mention Jimmy Valiant, but uh, a lot of people might not know this. Jimmy Valiant trained the current reigning all-elite wrestling world heavyweight champion, Hangman Adam Page. Huh. Did not know that. Wow. Yeah. I, now, I don't know if, if Boogie was his sole trainer or if he just participated in some camps, but uh, Hangman Adam Page absolutely had some at least some training at Boogie's Wrestling Camp in Shawsville, Virginia, a place I've been to many times uh, during my wow. career in uh, independent wrestling. So, yes, Jimmy Valiant trained the All Elite Wrestling World Heavyweight Champion, which I think is wild. So that's our first item was the unused ticket to Starcade 1986. Now, the second item was sent from Mom and Pop Card Shop in oh. Roaring Springs, Pennsylvania. Now, John, do we know for a fact that this is indeed run by a mom and a pop? Uh, judging by my brief eBay interaction with them, I could, I could neither, I can neither uh, confirm nor deny. Is this going to be like uh, the Seinfeld episode where they, where the mom and pop shoe store, it turns out they weren't even married and they absconded with all of Jerry's shoes. Uh, This could be something like that, but we've got, got the item unpacked and ready to be revealed. There were basically, it's, uh, it was sealed up pretty nicely and then there's two pieces of cardboard on either side of it so now that everything is untaped and un and opened all i have to do is flip over the cardboard and i see ooh, this is a reflective sticker yeah prism a prism sticker of larry zabisco who for some reason <laughs> uh has the devil lure, lure you know leering behind him ready to grab him and lots of flames too. And and, yeah, there are flames. Like there are flattered. flames emanating off the devil's. Uh, I don't know if it's his robe or just from you know the fire and brimstone behind him. But this is a pretty yeah. cool, you know, reflective card. So you know when you when you sort of tilt it around, it uh, it glows and it shines. Um, this this uh, depiction of Larry Zabisco is far and away the most muscular I have ever seen Larry Zabisco, <laughs> and also the oh, most yeah. blonde. I have ever seen Larry Zabisco. Uh, yeah. I mean, As I, a matter I, of fact, I love Larry Zabisco. this looks but, nothing like Larry know. Zabisco. No, Larry Zabisco looks more like Jim Belushi in a, in a wrestler's body, not like this yeah. person who looks sort of like He-Man. I don't know. Yeah, so I, I will post a picture of, of this item as well <laughs> oh, yeah. as the Starcade ticket on Twitter. Uh, so be sure to follow me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. And of course, you can follow John at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. So thank you again for continuing to add to my rather eclectic collection of wrestling yeah. memorabilia. Thanks to your, uh, you know, dedication to finding some off the wall items. The Larry Zabisco card that looks nothing like Larry Zabisco and for some reason has the devil lurking behind him. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. He's a bad guy, you know? Yeah, weird. <laughs> Let's move on to 1977, John. Yeah, baby. The fourth quarter of 1977 in Leroy McGurk's territory featured not just one, but two major turns. 
The first one involved Dr. X. Now, uh, Dr. X in this territory was Jim Osborne. He had a huge run here in the early part of the 70s, but this was his first time back in almost three years, and he returned in late September. He had, uh, when he was last here, he was a babyface, so he returns as a babyface. He quickly forms a team with Porkchop Cash, and they, I think in their first week or two as a team, win the U.S. tag team titles from the Medics. And this version of the Medics, as we've mentioned before, is Tom Andrews and Jim Starr, managed by Skandor Akbar. However, within, I think, two or three weeks of winning the titles, there's a TV angle splitting up Porkchop and Dr. X, and they end up doing the feud that Ole and Thunderbolt did in Georgia in the mid-'80s, where they each have one of the tag team belts, and they have singles matches to determine who gets possession of the tag team titles. And I believe that Dr. X eventually wins that wins possession of the U S tag team titles from his former partner, pork chop cash. The other turn, Dick Murdoch. Now Dick had just turned heel over the summer and aligned himself with manager Skandor Akbar. He turns babyface and begins to feud with Akbar and Akbar's newest charge, the aforementioned Dr. X. So I'm wondering if this is just a matter of, well, now that we have X, we can put him in the big heel slot and we don't, you know, we can just flip Murdoch back over or perhaps Murdoch's turn didn't work because he had been a big draw as a babyface for about two years before turning over the summer. So I'm just wondering if it was like the Stone Cold deal where it just didn't click. Do you you know anything uh, uh, about this, John? I, do, I don't. I don't. I mean, when you're looking at when you're looking at the at the roster, which we were able to do very easily thanks to you, you do, you do get the feeling that maybe it was just the need to balance out the the roster a little more because uh, you know X had just feuded with what, a pork chop cash, right? Right. Jerry Oates is on his way out to Portland. Right. Watts is there, but Watts is doing other stuff, popping up to Georgia a lot. Boobity uh, Cox is headed to Florida. Jimmy Golden's going to Knoxville. So there is, you know, like, you know, quote unquote, space to fill on the side. Um, you know, and then another reason your, your charts come in so handily, because if you glance at them quickly, you might think, oh, well, here's an opportunity opportunity for them to elevate, you know, Randy Tyler from the upper mid cart. But then you can see that they have him working a lot with the assassins. So there's not a lot of options. I mean, there's Orndorff, but he's still being uh, he's built yeah up he's he early still, early in his run I, yeah. I guess but he's still six months away and so but that being said I wonder if they thought Doctor X could have been that guy you know again if you don't turn X heel you don't yeah. need you don't have that void on the babyface side which to me yeah. lends some credence to the theory that they understood Murdoch worked better as a babyface. Uh, and, and that at least played into it uh, part of the reason. But, you know. Yeah, and Murdoch. Go on. Like, also, Murdoch, I think, Murdoch seems like one of those guys who is kind of, I don't know, bulletproof is the right term to an extent in terms of being able to turn him heel and babyface back and forth in a relatively short period of time. And it's, he's not really damaged by that. Like, for example, you couldn't do that with like a Ted DiBiase in 81 or anything. But with Murdoch, I don't think it hurts him or makes the angles or his feuds less meaningful. Yeah. And, and the fans, mm. you know, the fans in this day, they, you know, they didn't they didn't analyze things to the level we do. They were probably happy 
that Murdoch was good again. Because yeah. they, uh, you know, like you said, they point, were yeah. cheering him for two years. Uh, so, yeah, they were probably happy to do so. But you, you mentioned the roster. So let's go over the roster. Uh, and you can always yeah. see these on the blog at chartingtheterritories.com. We're going to list the main eventers. Uh, in the McGurk Territory in the fourth quarter of 1977. And I'm going to list them in descending order by spot rating. Just as a refresher, the spot rating is a numeric representation of a wrestler's average position on the card. A, it ranges from zero to one. It's a two-digit decimal. A 1.00 means they were in the main event of every single card they were booked on during the quarter. And a spot rating of a 0. 0.80 or better indicates they were main eventers. So number one on these spot ratings is Dick Murdoch, and he's got a 0. 0.90, which means he was mostly in the main events, but uh, other times he was probably second from the top, but he probably more often than not, he's in the main event right behind him is Bill Watts. And as you mentioned, Watts isn't wrestling, you know, six nights a week, seven nights a week, like the rest of the crew. Another feature of the charts that we post on the blog is we have a bookings per week stat for every wrestler. So you can see which wrestlers aren't wrestling as frequently or aren't booked as frequently. Next up is Jerry Oates with a spot rating of 0.89. So he's right behind Murdoch and Watts. Then you have The Assassin, uh, which is Jody Hamilton, Dr. X, Eric the Red, Porkchop Cash, Ray Candy, one of the medics, and it was Tom Andrews, Haystack Calhoun, who actually came in for about three weeks. He's not really a regular, but the way I do my stats, if they're there for three weeks consecutively, I put them on the chart. Uh, and then you have Thunderbolt Patterson, who debuted in the territory in November and quickly moved up to main event status. Now, John, last month, we discussed some things we learned about the early life of Ed Wiskowski before he became a professional wrestler. Included yep. among those was his involvement with the Neighborhood Youth Corps, helping at-risk youth and parolees with job training and job placement. In previous mm-hmm. episodes of this yeah. podcast, we've talked about Sylvester Ritter's high school experience in the wake of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Uh, you found some great information about Len Rossi and Bobby Jaggers and their post-wrestling careers. Uh, so refresh uh, the memory of our listeners about Len Rossi and Bobby Jaggers real quick. Well, Len Rossi, you know, the, 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 the health store that he had for years and years and years. Uh, and Bobby Jaggers, you know, worked for FEMA. The FEMA engineer for for years went went back after wrestling went back back to school got an yeah. engineering degree and worked for FEMA. So they might not have been rock stars or famous celebrities, but they had successful and and rewarding post wrestling careers. We also talked about Perfect. the drug arrest that led to Don Diamond's disappearance from wrestling and how it seems yeah. like that served as a wake up call that led him to a successful career in business afterwards, as opposed to a uh, part of a downward spiral. And John, the reason I'm bringing all this up is because in our quest to find some new information about the wrestlers that we're talking about, we stumbled upon some interesting things involving the life of a Claude Patterson in 1962. Oh, yeah. So we'll start with this. I, I want to say Thunderbolt Patterson, professional wrestler. His real name was Claude Patterson. He was born and grew up in Waterloo, Iowa. And in 1962, he would have been 22 years old. Uh, John and I together found several articles uh, regarding incidents that occurred in 1962 to an individual 
named Claude Patterson, living in Waterloo, Iowa, who was 22 years old at the time. So I'm just throwing in a slight hedge. I have absolutely no reason to believe it's a different person. But just in case, let's be very clear. This person has the same exact name, is from the same town, and was the same age as Thunderbolt Patterson. But we're going to do our best to refer to him as Claude Patterson. So, John, you started this whole whole ball rolling with an article <laughs> you found in The Courier in Waterloo, Iowa. John, it's a short article. If you have it handy, go ahead and just read it. Uh, just read the whole article. Oh, uh, headline, man arrested for soliciting two youths, 19. Uh, Waterloo police said they acted on tips from two youths. Uh, I'm trying hard not to say that like uh, uh, Fred like Gwynn in my, and, uh, my cousin. <laughs> Fred Gwynn and my cousin yeah. <laughs> in arresting a 22-year-old man for alleged soliciting activities. Claude Patterson of 502 Cottage Street is being held under $2,000 bond. Soliciting convictions carry penalties of up to five years in the state penitentiary. Officers said the incident leading to Patterson's arrest took place April 15th. Two 19-year-old youth told police that Patterson approached them as they sat in their car at Almond and Iowa Streets. They said Patterson made an illicit offer involving two women. Uh, Patterson appeared before Judge Sager for arraignment and asked for time in which to employ a lawyer. Sager scheduled another court appearance for next Tuesday. So that article was from April 20th, 1962, and it sure sounds like this Claude Patterson walked up to two men uh, of his own volition and offered services from women. However, a May 3rd, 1962 article offers a little more details where it says the two young men testified against Patterson Thursday. They said they stopped at the intersection because they had heard stories about a house in the vicinity. They said that Patterson soon emerged from the house and offered to procure women for them. The youths said they declined the offer. A short time later, they were stopped by the police, questioned about their activities in the neighborhood at 4 a.m., and reported the incident involving Patterson. So now, all of a sudden, the fact that these two youths were just ran- happened to be there and Claude Patterson proposed them now is probably less true. Uh, In fact, they pretty much said they went to that area for a specific purpose. Why Mm -hmm. they then turned down the offer, I don't know. But when police stopped them, they decided to rat out somebody else. So that's important to note. Um, Unfortunately, things would get worse for Claude. Well, actually, they wouldn't get worse. They'd get better because there was a, uh, a charge against him for assault filed against him by his estranged wife on May 17th. A few days later, Claude was found innocent of this charge, but uh, Mrs. Patterson claimed that Claude Patterson came to her parents' home May 13th and threatened to take her three children from her and to kill her. Oh, God. Yeah, yet just mere days later, Claude Patterson was found innocent of this charge. So let's keep that in mind. Okay, that's good. Good. The trial for soliciting uh, was set for uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, I think the first week of June. And then on June 10th, an article in The Courier 
uh, notes that a Waterloo man Friday was cleared of a charge of being an accessory to an act of sodomy in the county jail. Oh, dear. The charge against Claude Patterson of 502 Cottage Street was dismissed after a municipal court preliminary hearing. So basically, uh, it, it, what happened in prison is probably exactly what you have heard can happen in prisons or in the WWE in the mid nineties, uh, where there is a, you know, a tribunal where three, you know, three of the prisoners with seniority, uh, get to call the shots. And if you cross them, they are able to mete out punishment. Um, the three other inmates were actually bound to trial, but Patterson's involvement in whatever may or may not have happened, uh, was dropped in June 10th. So again, let's be clear. All the things we're saying about Claude Patterson in one instance, he was found innocent. And in another instance, charges were dropped. And on June 26th, the, uh, soliciting charge ended up with Claude Patterson being given a suspended sentence of three months in jail. Uh, so he already served uh, about a month at this point in time. And so he was released from jail. He was paroled to the sheriff. And as suspended sentences go, as long as you don't run afoul of the law for that one year period of time, you're done. You, you, it is considered as time served. Good. So that was uh, Claude Patterson's 1962, oh. although the year ended with another interesting minor footnote in that he ended up filing for bankruptcy in November, probably perhaps of all due to all the legal fees he incurred. So, John, yeah, again, definitely. you know, hearing this, it sounds like this is, you know, the story of a downward spiral. And within two years, Claude Patterson is a professional wrestler. And from that point forward, it sure looks like his life trajectory was far more positive than it would have been perhaps if he didn't get into wrestling. And, and, and this reminds me of a friend of mine who's an independent wrestler in the Southeast. Uh, his name is Slim J. His real name is Jeremy Boyd. Now, Slim, uh, best known for wrestling in Wildside, but he also wrestled for Ring of Honor. I believe he was part, I believe he was a part of Special K. Uh, and he's wrestled uh, for, at this point, well over 20 years. He still wrestles occasionally to this day. Oh, wow. Um, when Slim was 16 years old, when he first started training to be a wrestler, at the age of 16, he had already been in and out of juvie multiple times and had been in trouble with the law for several years at that point. Uh, on more than one occasion, he's told me personally that he feels that had it not been for wrestling, had he not found professional wrestling, that he would have been in jail or dead by the time he was 20. So... Uh, Slim J turned his life around, made changes for the better uh, due to pro wrestling. As much as we, you know, talk about the negative aspects of pro wrestling and, and the bad people that are in and around it, it does have some positive moments as well. And I think Jeremy Boyd's story is proof of that. And it wouldn't surprise me to learn that Claude Patterson would feel the same way. Again, looking at what happened in 1962, even though innocent on one charge, another charge was dropped, and he had a very small suspended sentence for the other. That's still, all of that happening within a couple of months is a yeah. sign. Yeah. Despite all that, he still managed to, to be, I don't know if you want to call him a, a controversial figure, a polarizing individual. Um, as someone people have very strong opinions of. Um, it's He's just a fascinating, fascinating guy, a fascinating personality, 
Uh, and it's it, 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 been looking at him through 2021 eyes with the, the landscape of wrestling having changed so much and with the, 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 the public, you know, sympathies, if you want to call it that at large siding with, with wrestlers more so these days over the, the promoters slash owners. I wonder if like he, you know, he's viewed differently now than he was even, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, and you know, how, how his legacy will be, will take shape over, over, over the next, in the next few years. Yeah. I, I think the people that, you know, have, have knocked him is, is because he was standing up to promoters and he was fighting for equal pay for wrestlers. And let's be clear, not just black wrestlers, but for all wrestlers. Uh, he sort of, you know, was demanding yeah. an equal share. Um, there's also that, uh, the story of the backstage fight with Tank Patton, where Tank Patton said a very, very bad word and Thunderbolt beat the shit out of him. Yeah. And apparently Thunderbolt, was the one who ended up getting fired out of the deal. So if you mm. take all the stories on a case by case basis, it, you know, from what I've read, he's in the moral right on all of them, but in the wrestling world in the 1970s, that really didn't matter. You weren't supposed to buck the system uh, the, the way that Thunderbolt did. So there's an article on slam wrestling. There's always great articles about uh, wrestlers on slam wrestling. We'll post a link to that on Twitter. Uh, one of the interesting things I learned from reading that article, John, was that before he entered wrestling, so this is probably in the period right before 1964, Thunderbolt was working at a John Deere factory. And when he started wrestling, they wouldn't give him weekends off or enough time off to wrestle. So he ended up quitting uh, his job and moving to Kansas City. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know that he was a uh, a boxer also as a kid, like a like a Golden Gloves boxer, like in the uh, like the novice heavyweight division when he was like sixteen years old, and that was one of the ways, like the roundabout way, you know, he got into through through, uh, through pro wrestling was through uh, promoter Gus Karras, who, in addition to promoting wrestling, a lot of the promoters back then also promote him. You know, he promoted boxing, the Harlem Globetrotters, horse shows baseball tournaments, you know, amusement park stuff, all kinds of stuff. Um, and it's, it's interesting. These promoters see something in these guys, either physically uh, in the ring or in the case of Thunderbolt, maybe saw something personality-wise and, and thought like, yeah, this, this guy's career is better in a wrestling ring uh, as opposed to a boxing ring. And I think that was probably the case with Thunderbolt there. That could be. And uh, there's also an interview uh, with Mike Mooneyham from 1998. And what's interesting here, I was doing some research on Thunderbolt's career, and he uh, at one point wrestled for Ann Gunkel uh, when Ann split from Georgia Championship Wrestling and started All-South Wrestling. Thunderbolt wasn't there at the beginning, but by early 1973, Thunderbolt was wrestling for Ann. Now, it ends up with uh, Thunderbolt... Uh, either quitting or being fired over pay. There was a pay dispute. Thunderbolt mm -hmm. wanted more money. And Thunderbolt ends up teaming up with a local uh, reverend named Jose Williams and uh, another wrestler who is infamous for bucking the system, Jim Wilson. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they formed a outlaw wrestling company. So Thunderbolt was working for Ann Gunkel, who was probably, who could be considered an outlaw promoter at the time. And then he forms an outlaw to go after the outlaw promotion, yes. <laughs> which I find fascinating. But what's interesting about how all this ties together is that in that interview with Mike Mooneyham from 1998, 
Thunderbolt says he was always hanging around the local wrestling matches trying to talk to wrestlers to get an in. And he said the first guy who took an interest in him was Ray Gunkel. Huh. So perhaps that explains why Thunderbolt was uh, was initially happy to work for Ann after she split from Georgia Championship Wrestling. So I just find all these yeah. you know connections fascinating that in 1963 or 1964, uh, you know, a young Thunderbolt Patterson talks to Ray Gunkel. I think Ray uh, gave him a name and address to get some wrestling boots. And then, you know, less than a decade later, Thunderbolt is wrestling for Ray's widow uh, as an outlaw to Georgia Championship Wrestling and then ends up forming an outlaw to the outlaw. And just to tell you how the outlaw to the outlaw ended up, Jim Wilson ended up suing Thunderbolt and their other business partner for a million dollars the following year. So it didn't go well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was looking at the the IWL and prepping for this episode and they... Had out, you know, a whole uh, like almost like a, a mission statement that they sent out with the, uh, you know, quotes from uh, Jose Williams and Thunderbolt and uh, a little background about why they're doing what they're doing, their purpose, and it lists their their, their board of directors, you know, and it has like Jose Williams, Thunderbolt Patterson, Jim Wilson, uh, a bunch of other like treasurer, secretary people whose names I, I don't recognize. And then like later on. Yeah, it's got it's got Tank Patton. I mean, there, uh, Homer Odell, who seems like an odd, an odd fit for this group. Uh, beautiful Bobby Harmon, also a member, and uh, Asa, the Wild Samoan, <laughs> also a member, and who's a guy listed as Booker under the name Doctor Blood. Who I'm not quite sure who Doctor Blood could be. So like, this is too early to be Wayne St. Wayne, correct? Can they? Be? Yeah, I. It might have been Dale Lewis. Dale Lewis. I, but yeah. I don't, that doesn't make sense because Dale was always tight with Watts. Yeah. So, per, and so perhaps that's a fake name as some sort of inside rib on Watts. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but I don't know. But what's interesting about the IWL, at one point they were advertising Bearcat Wright was going to be coming in. So what did Georgia hmm. Championship Wrestling do? Book Bearcat Wright. Yeah. And put him on TV the Saturday (laughs) before IWL was supposed to run a big show at the Omni, which led to the IWL Uh, canceling that show. Oh, boy. (laughs) Love wrestling. There's there's some YouTube footage of Thunderbolt Patterson. There's some matches. But my favorite thing of what John uh, curated for his list (laughs) of YouTube recommendations is an interview. Uh, It's a promo that Thunderbolt does talking about the Sheik. And Mm. I think we all have heard that Dusty Rhodes uh, patterned his interview style after Thunderbolt Patterson. If you haven't yet seen any proof of that, I implore you to watch that. No, not to watch this interview, to play this interview, but then close your eyes and you will see without a shadow of a doubt exactly where Dusty Rhodes got his interview style from down to the cadence, the speech patterns, everything to a T. But John, of the matches <laughs> of the matches you listed, uh, if, if our listeners could only watch one of them, which would you recommend? I would probably recommend the Thunderbolt versus Dusty for the Southern Heavyweight title, Tampa, Florida, October 73. It's really, it's only like a five minute clip too. So it's easy. Dusty's still a heel. Starts out kind of like a mess with Thunderbolt attacking some guy in a mask who comes out with Dusty, who ends up being 
I think Don Carson, uh, Jimmy Golden comes out. It's a, it's a big, big schmoz before the match, and they have the actual match. And the actual match is kind of like, in parts, it's sort of like the, the Spider-Man meme where he's pointing at the other Spider-Man. Right. <laughs> Dusty and Thunderbolt. Uh, watching those two work together. And Dusty takes a great bump in this match, too, actually getting headbutted. He's sort of in the corner. He goes flying through the top and middle ropes onto the floor. And it looks like he doesn't touch anything. Like I'm sure it was safe. I'm sure Dusty isn't taking, doesn't know what he's doing there. I'm sure he's, he's being safe. But it looks freaking amazing. It's a bump I, you don't see Dusty take in the, in the 80s, you know? Yeah. That was really good. Yeah. All right. So we'll post that's, a link to that video as well as some other YouTube footage of Thunderbolt Patterson, as well as links to the articles we're talking about and some pictures of Thunderbolt from the collection of John Boucher. Uh, Thunderbolt just started in the McGurk territory in November of 1977 and quickly moved up to main eventer status. Now, the next tier of wrestlers using our spot ratings are the upper mid-carders, and they have a spot between 0.60 and 0.80. And first up is Killer Carl Cox, who, as you mentioned, finished up early in the quarter and goes to Florida. And he had been a main eventer for, you know, the last two years. And this is an example of when many wrestlers are finishing up in a territory, they are bumped down the card slightly. They they are losing matches and they're basically moved down the cards and losing matches to guys on their way up the cards. So they're sort of, their paths intersect in the upper mid card range as the newcomer is headed towards main event status and the other wrestlers headed out of the territory. So Cox goes to Florida, and this puts an end to the feud between he and Murdoch, which had started back in October 1975 and had seen at least three separate iterations and phases. Uh, most of the time, Murdoch had been the babyface and Cox had been the heel, but the third phase, um, which took place over the summer, had Murdoch as the heel and Cox as the babyface. Now, after Killer Carl Cox on the spot ratings is Skandor Akbar, followed by the other medic, Jim Starr. And Jim was actually unmasked early in the quarter and then stayed as himself. He was referred to as uh, the unmasked medic or the ex-medic Jim Starr and then becomes Hangman Jim Starr. Not to be confused with Jimmy Valiant's prized student, All Elite Wrestling Heavyweight Champion Hangman Page. <laughs> Further down in the upper mid-carders, we have Jimmy Golden, we have Vic Rossitani, a.k.a. Vic Mueller, and two newcomers, Randy Tyler, who was here after, who came back after a seven-month run in Central States, and then Stephen Littlebear, who is uh, also known as Steve Kovac. A little further down the cards are our mid-carders, and mid-carders have a spot rating of between a .40 and a .60. Uh, again, if the uh, spot rating goes from zero to one, well, 0.4 and 0.6, if you, you know, draw a space, you know, there, that is in the middle of the chart. So these would be yep. wrestlers that compete in the middle of the card. You've got Doug Summers, Swede Hansen, Kurt Von Hess, Bob Marcus, and a debuting Paul Orndorff. Now, in the case of Von Hess and Orndorff, they're starting out lower in the cards and slowly moving up. And of course, Orndorff in particular will move up significantly in 1978. Uh, I've been reading Brian Blair's new book, Truth Be Told. Have you gotten oh. that one yet, John? I haven't. I haven't. How is it? Would I, should I get this for Christmas? Um, I'm enjoying it so far. It's, it's a good read. Brian is pretty matter of fact about you know his career. 
Um, but I, you know, I, I didn't know how tight he and Orndorff had been over the years. And it, it makes sense. I, I do remember the WWF house show matches in the mid to late 80s. Whenever Blair and Orndorff would uh, be in the ring together, it was always fantastic. And when you really think about it and realize that they had pretty much started out together and had been in numerous places at the same time, you know, the light bulb goes off in my head and, oh, okay, this all makes sense. But another thing that's interesting is it corroborates something you mentioned many, many months ago about Art Nelson being the booker initially for Leroy McGurk when McGurk split from Watts. And that was something I I had thought he was Booker later on when Rippin' Swede came in in 81. But no, uh, according to Brian, Art Nelson was the Booker initially for Leroy. Didn't quite pan out. And that's when Akbar uh, became the Booker in addition to being the lead heel manager and one of the top, you know, full-time wrestlers as well. So Akbar wore all the hats for Leroy McGurk's Tri-State Wrestling from uh, late 1979 through... Uh, late 80 or early 81. Um, But talking about Art Nelson, that brings us to someone who he often crossed paths with and one of the wrestlers who are in the mid cards for Leroy in 1977. And that is Swede Hansen. Yeah. Raw bone, Swede Hansen. Raw bone, Swede Hansen. Best known for (laughs) teaming up for 8 billion years with Rip Hawk as the blonde bombers. Um, later on, John, we're going to be talking about Mid-Atlantic in 1973 and the changes that George Scott made to the roster. One of the changes he did not make was well, he was he kept Sweet Hansen. Um, Rip actually left for like four or five months to go to Florida, but Swede stuck around. And it's interesting because there are a couple of instances of seeing Swede following George Scott as Booker in later years, much in the same way that whenever Gary Hart got the book somewhere, you would see the spoiler coming in. Uh, The same thing happens with Swede Hansen. When George Scott became Booker for Leroy McGurk in late 1981, Swede and Rip Hawk come in as a tag team, uh, followed shortly by Jimmy Snuka and Paul Jones. In 1984, when George Scott comes into the WWF and books there, Swede Hansen goes to the WWF. So it's just interesting to see these following alongs of when a a new booker starts in a territory, he brings his trusted allies with him. You found an article from the Columbia, South Carolina newspaper, The State. And this was in the Sunday, you know, magazine type section that most newspapers had on Sundays. But this is a full page article on page one of the, the magazine insert. And it's about... Uh, Sweet Hansen, Rip Hawk, and Gary Hart. Uh, it's a pretty generic, you know, reporter interviews the wrestlers and, and the wrestlers keep kayfabe, uh, you know, and say, of course, it's of course, it's real. There's too much money at stake, you know, to choreo- to, to fix matches. Yeah. Um, but I, there's yeah. one line from the article that really stuck out with me. The reporter is talking about how two hours before bell time and then and I quote, two straggly but growing lines of grandmas and grandpas secretaries, housewives, shipping clerks, file clerks, and farmers have already formed at the ticket office. So that's a nice cross-section of Americana there. Uh, Did anything from that article or uh, anything from the Mike Mooneyham article that we're going to talk about stick out to you about Sweet? There There was that line. There was another line. Where was it? 
Oh. Oh, I think it was. I think it was. It was a. It was a Swede quote where he's like, uh, uh, I guess ninety percent of her fan mail is from women. <laughs> women just seem to go for wrestlers a good deal. Why? I guess a lot hate their husbands, <laughs> who generally are undernourished and don't work out. They probably couldn't tell you a hammerlock from an abdominal stretch. <laughs> undernourished husbands <laughs> causing the women husbands. to write fan mail to Rip Hawk and Sweet Hanson. <laughs> Sweet Hanson, yeah, it's those heartthrobs that they are. Yeah. I love that line. There's an article from Mike Mooneyham. Uh, that Mike wrote shortly after Swede passed away, I believe. But there's a story in this article talking about how one time in Lynchburg, Virginia, when rowdy fans sliced Swede down the side of his leg oh, and later tried to overturn the ambulance that was transporting him to the hospital. <laughs> the shaken ambulance driver quickly regained his composure when Swede warned that he would commandeer the vehicle if the driver thought twice about slowing down for the unruly crowd. And to add to that, Swede was back in the ring the next night. Of course he was. Of course he was. <laughs> There's an article on the Mid-Atlantic Gateway talking about Swede teaming with someone other than Rip Hawk and Swede eventually turning on said wrestler. Uh, we'll post a link to that. And again, that's something that might spoil something that's coming later. So we'll just tease you with that. And of course, you can see him in action on the YouTube via several clips that John has uh, studiously put together. And I will put out on Twitter again. John, of, of the matches you've got, if uh, if our listeners could only watch one of them, what would it be? Watch one. I would probably pick... Um, Hmm. You know, as much as I would want to say, you know, Rip Hawk and Sweet Hansen versus Weaver and Nelson, because it's like a classic mid-Atlantic great tag match. And you can really see the, 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 you know, one thing that's great about them was as a tag team, they, 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 you know, they were heels and they would cheat a little bit, but they were a lot of times they were by the book and they would do like this quick tag in and out thing, like in, stop the arm, out, in, and just do it. And it's like such a great way to, to, to get heat. Um, so, uh, I like, you know, it's, 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 and he's so, he's young there, Swede, he's a little younger and he's so big and he's quick. Like the way he takes, takes an arm drag from, you know, the smaller Johnny Weaver is like, it's, it's great. He's just more agile than I remember him, you know, seeing him in like 1982 or whatever. So as much as I like that match, <laughs> I'd probably recommend the one from a few years later, Swede versus Ricky Steamboat. Um, from I think it's Mid Atlantic TV '79, maybe. Uh, and it's just a, it's a it's just a freaking great TV match, man. It's like a true sign of the times. Like the commentator, maybe Rich Landrum is the commentator here. I'm not sure. Tells us that Swede's astrological sign is Aries. Um, and just like I said, a great TV match. And these guys really like freaking really lay it into each other during was the era. That, like, was that something he did for all the wrestlers? Is that the equivalent of Art Donovan asking Gorilla how much each guy weighed? Was Rich I've obsessed seen it on, with, I've, with uh, the Zodiac? Whoever this guy is, like, during this period in the, like, the late 70s, I've seen him do it multiple times. You know, and Steamboat Selling, of course, is off the charts. He's just fantastic. It's like he's getting, he's getting shot by a sniper for, you know. Uh, and and, and again, Swede's a little bit older here, but he's so great to watch. He takes like a bump over the top rope after his TV match. Um, 
and just the way he like Swede like runs the ropes. So I'm watching him run the ropes, and, and it's like in the little TV studio, and just the way he takes like a turnbuckle bump. It's it's just great. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about it. It's just like it's just amazing and so different than watching most guys today take a turnbuckle bump. Like he took it. It just looked like this this in, it, you know this moment was like Godzilla being backed up against the building after you know it's like amazing i don't know what it is just he's just great to watch here john you did some research into swede's heart attack uh and you found yeah. several sources <laughs> question the years but again thanks to our crack detective work we actually yeah. found the answer so talk a little bit about that and also talk about while swede was recovering from said heart attack what other uh thing came up that probably gave him a lot of stress yeah, I had I had read, you know, researching for Swede, and I've always heard about, you, you know, you always hear random stories about people having a heart attack, da 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 da, da. and I read about Swedes, and there was a couple different articles. Uh, one said seventy three, or one said seventy one, one said seventy four, and I was like, well, what did he have two heart attacks? Which, which, which is it? Um, what is going on here with this heart attack? Um, I, I can't leave well enough alone, as you know. So, you know, by doing the research, we found that it was in uh, was it July of '73, I believe. Yeah, the very and end of July 1973. We found his last match, um, and found an article from the paper that actually talks about him being in the in the in the hospital, convalescing. Um, but, and, <laughs> but at some point during his convalescence um he and jim crockett promotions were sued for 11 million dollars that's 1973 dollars which i think i think i want to say if i can do my i want to say that's probably like 60 70 million dollars in 2020 2021 <laughs> like which that probably didn't uh probably didn't help the old, the old, the old ticker, the old ticker there. Yeah, he was. Yeah, they were sued because they did one of those deals where uh, a wrestler promises to throw money to the crowd if they lost, and the and the wrestler did lose. Believe it or not, that actually happened mm-hmm. more often than you think. Yeah, was yeah was that they did throw the money, but in the ensuing melee that followed, this fan was injured and then claimed that Swede stepped on his wrist and then was was kicking him. Uh, and somehow that is worth the equivalent of 60 to $70 million today. Uh, we couldn't find yeah. an outcome on the case if it ever went to trial or was settled yeah. or what. But yeah, while he's recovering from a heart attack, he then learns he's getting sued for $11 million. Now, the heart attack happened after a show in South Carolina. What's interesting was the show itself, um, he was teaming with Rip Hawk and Homer Odell in a six-man. The match ended when the three of them left the ring area, and this is a direct quote from the newspaper, and returned to the dressing room. Now, while that mm-hmm. was an occasional finish yeah. that was used at times to build up, you know, a rematch with uh, Lumberjack or False Can Anywhere, I wonder if perhaps Swede felt something was wrong and they just called an audible. Uh, but the article talking about his hospitalization mentions that he did go home after the show, didn't feel right, and then drove himself to the hospital. So it wasn't an immediate hmm. medical emergency. But again, I, you know, it's very possible um, that Swede 
felt something during the match and and decided to just uh, get together with and agree that they're just going to head on out of there before things got Wrap worse. Yeah. We'll never know. Um, uh, Swede had three tours of Japan over the years, John. Oh. Uh, he had three tours over a span of 16 years, and each of them was for a different promotion. In 1967, he toured for the JWA. In 1977, he toured for All Japan. And in 1983, he did one tour of New Japan where he teamed up with Andre the Giant in New Japan's annual tag team tournament, which at the time was called the MSG Tag League. Uh, In 1983, it was a nine-team round-robin tournament where um, each team wrestles each other team, and there are points for winning matches, and you get certain points if you go to a draw as well, and there's zero points if you lose. And at the end of the round-robin series, generally speaking, the two teams with the highest point total would then meet in the finals. However, on the second-to-last night of the tour, Swede was apparently injured in a match teaming with Andre, facing another team in the tournament, Wayne Bridges and Otto Vons. Mm. And they were in first place. Andre and Swede were in first place at the, because this was the last match of the round robin series. So the round robin part was done. Andre and Swede were in first place. Swede was injured. So the finals, which took place the next night, featured the second place team versus the third place team. And that was Antonio Inoki and Hulk Hogan beating Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch to win. Now, it wouldn't surprise me to learn that Inoki and Hogan would have won the tournament anyway over Andre and Swede. Their (sighs) match during the round robin series went to a draw. So it's probable, um, but not definite, that the, the, the team that was supposed to win still ended up winning. But what a shame for Swede had an opportunity for a high-profile match in the finals of the 1983 MSG Tag League and couldn't do it because of injury. Uh, would have had that nice trophy, that nice, nice, nice spread in uh, you know, the Japanese magazines. Yeah, uh, hmm. that, but that's interesting that in his first tour with New Japan, they team him up with Andre in this big tournament. That That's interesting yeah. as well. And I guess that's a testament to how highly regarded Swede Hansen was that he could be brought in as a newcomer to New Japan and put with Andre. And it's uh, and it's believable. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he was uh, also friendly with Andre. Wasn't he friends with Andre like uh, uh, driving partners? Back in the 70s. That might have something to do with it as well. And perhaps if we take that a step further, perhaps then it was Andre who suggested Swede for the spot uh, as a way of thanking him. I finally finished Andre the Giant's book. I've had it since it came out, I think. I finally finished reading it uh, recently. And and you can tell uh, in the book that if someone, you know, took, you know, helped Andre out at some point in their lives, Andre remembered it. And if yeah. the opportunity arose to pay it back, he would. So, uh, yeah, if Swede was uh, friends with Andre or driving Andre around, it's very likely that Andre was able to return the favor and get Swede this prime gig for New Japan Pro Wrestling. Uh, a feud that is indicative of guys enjoying to work against one another uh, happened in 1977 in the McGurk Territory. 
uh, one of the biggest feuds was Ray Candy versus The Assassin. They had feuded two times previously in two different territories. The first time when Ray was a rookie in All South, and then they feuded again in Florida in 1976. And apparently the feud worked well enough, drew well enough, and the two guys liked each other enough that when the opportunity came to run it back in 1977, they did it. So our blog post on chartingtheterritories.com that covers this period of time includes a town-by-town chronological look at the Ray Candy and the Assassin's feud in this territory. It built to various stipulation matches depending on the town, including headbutting contests and lumberjack matches. Uh, And the blog also contains advertised lineups for 114 known house shows in the territory during the fourth quarter of 1977. This time period is notable because it's when George Culkin, Leroy's local promoter in Mississippi, splits from Leroy and starts his own outlaw territory named ICW. Uh, There are two house shows in Greenwood, Mississippi on October 2nd and October 9th. And then that's it for the Culkins with McGurk. The Culkins' first house show after the split was October 17th in Gulfport. So there was an eight-day window between the last show they promoted for Leroy and the first show they promoted on their own. Uh, And within the first couple of weeks, they're running a pretty regular schedule of shows throughout Mississippi. You can actually learn more about the Culkins' territory by downloading my PDF file, the Culkin Wrestling Almanac, which you can find at payhip.com. That's P-A-Y. HIP.com slash charting the territories. Interesting to note that about a month after the Culkin started, uh, McGurk and Watts started running Jackson, Mississippi head to head with Culkin mm. on Wednesday nights, uh, literally running a venue four and a half miles away from where the Culkins wow. were running and using George's brother in law, Jack Curtis Jr., as their front man. So it's not just a promotional feud. It's literally a family feud as well. Yeah. Uh, when dirty. I spoke with dirty, you know, dirty, dirty, dirty. When I spoke with Gil uh, last year, he said that there were some hard feelings uh, between he and his father, George and Jack Curtis for a while, but they had mended fences long a while back, which is good to know because, of course, Jack passed away, I think, early this year or very late last year. Yeah. So it's good to know that they were able to put their differences behind them uh, before Jack passed away. Uh, but that wraps up our look at 1977. We're going to shoot back in the time machine 12 years earlier mm-hmm. to the third quarter of 1965. There's not a whole lot of info on Leroy's bookers in the 1960s. Uh, Tim Hornbaker once told me that Leroy did most of the booking um and that at times, some of his right-hand men, such as Bob Clay or Leo Voss, would do some booking. Um, but there are definitely times when you can see one wrestler having some stroke in the territory. And you can sort of view this by looking at our spot ratings and seeing a wrestler higher up on the spot ratings than they generally were at other times when they were in the territory. So I will preface this by saying... I have no idea whether or not Don Kent was the booker for Leroy in the third quarter of 1965, but he had numerous stints here over the years, and he was generally in the upper mid cards, sometimes in the main events, but not regularly. However, at this point in time, he absolutely is a main eventer. He's the lead heel. He's feuding with Argentina Zuma. 
He then feuds with Mike Clancy, who is a top babyface star and a former world junior heavyweight champion. And then after forming a team with Anton Ripper Leone, they split up. Leone turns babyface and Kent starts feuding with Leone. So Don Kent is in the main event mix and in every major feud in the territory at this time, which leads me to speculate that if he's not the booker, he at least has Leroy's ear at this point in time. Finding out who was booking where, when is so tough. And it really is sort of like, like assembling that side of territorial history is sort of very like piecemeal the way you end up having to do it. It's sort of just like, oh, here's an interview where, you know, Frankie Kane said that this guy was booking during this time. Okay, so we have that. But, you know, it's hard to, to, to. To, uh, to piece that together right. a lot we, of the time. We know and some I, instances know. where someone definitely was the booker, but there are large periods of time where we don't know. And so yeah. we can make assumptions. Again, I look to Florida in, I think, 1985 when Dutch Mantel turned babyface and a member of the Freebirds. I hope, yep, there you go. There and you go. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't you know it, Dutch there Mantel was go. the booker when all these things happened. Well, no, Buddy Rogers. There's an there's an obvious one too. Anytime Buddy Rogers would come into a territory, it wouldn't necessarily be the Booker, but he would bring in his, you know, his Billy Darnells and his crew of guys. Yeah, and he's Same got sort of thing, he's right? got input on some things, if not the whole shebang. Yeah. Uh, certainly, yeah. his programs, and he's probably able to uh, take care of of the guys he brought with him. Yep, yeah. that's just the way the world worked. So, aside from Kent. The other main eventers in the territory are Mike Clancy and Ike Eakins. And again, Ike Eakins may or may not have been brought to the territory to uh, take out Jack Donovan, who's here as an upper mid-carder. So again, you know, whatever may have wanted, you know, may have, Leroy may have wanted to happen, didn't happen because Donovan is still around. Uh, Other upper mid-carders are Anton Ripper Leone, Argentina Zuma, Joe McCarthy, Doug Gilbert, and this, of course, is Doug Lindsay, not Eddie Gilbert's brother, uh, Tom Bradley, and young rookie Jack Briscoe. Something I realized uh, when we were talking about Starcade, Jack Briscoe's, so Jack Briscoe, of course, was a future world heavyweight champion, and his first ever professional wrestling match was against another future world heavyweight champion, Ronnie Garvin. I wonder if that is something that has been was ever duplicated. Huh, that's a good one. That's a good one to research. I wonder if there's a case where a future world heavyweight champion's first ever professional wrestling match was against someone else who would also later hold the world heavyweight title. So, listeners, if you have such an example, hit us up on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling at John underscore Boucher and let us know. Perhaps we can discuss it next month on the podcast. Yes. Oh, wow. That's a good, that's a good one. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even really think of it until I was thinking more about Ronnie Garvin uh, when, when we we're talking oh. about Starcade. Um, but talking about Briscoe, you can see him slowly being moved up the cards. He's still a rookie. He's still learning. He's very well protected. I think in m- many towns, they ran an undefeated streak with him for a while. And again, in at least one town, to the shock of no one who subscribes to the Don Kent was Booker theory, Jack Briscoe's winning streak was ended by Don Kent. Yeah. <laughs> so again, lending credence to the theory, uh, both Leone and Zuma 
returned to the territory during the quarter, with Leone being back for the first time in a little over a year, and Zuma, according to our records, are now thorough records, this was the first time Zuma, Argentina Zuma, had wrestled for Leroy McGurk since mid-1959. In fact, these were Zuma's first matches in North America since April of 1960. Uh, if you listened to the latest episode of my Wrestling History Mysteries podcast, you learned that Argentina Zuma is falsely credited by some people as having wrestled Luthez on March 11th, 1963 in Tulsa. And because of that erroneous match listing, that led to people believing that Zuma was the masked wrestler billed as Mr. Zabo, because Mr. Zabo uh, was, in fact, the man who wrestled Luthez on March 11th, 1963. So uh, what was probably began as an innocent mistake, someone transcribing some handwritten results where they saw someone wrote the word Zabo and maybe they thought it was Zuma, that uh, perpetuated and was copied and pasted for literally, at this point, almost 60 years. And it led to historian Koji Miyamoto claiming that Zuma was Mr. Zabo. But John, thanks to literally months and months of research from yeah. you and I and several yeah. other people, we have uncovered enough information regarding Zuma's whereabouts between 1960 and 1965 to disprove this above and beyond any reasonable doubt. Basically, Zuma was wrestling for Mid-Atlantic in uh, the spring of 1960. Zuma's mother, who lived in Argentina, passed away, and Zuma returned to Argentina for her funeral and to attend to family matters. Less than a month later, one of Zuma's brothers passed away. And in a letter to Jack Pfeffer, Zuma told Pfeffer, at this point, he doesn't know when he'll be able to return to the States. The following year, Zuma got married, and one of his three children was born in May of 1963 in Argentina. And again, we have this documented as fact from records we found on Ancestry.com, from Jack Pfeffer's collection at Notre Dame, and from a uh, Freedom of Information Act request I made with uh, the Department of Immigration Services. We yeah. know that Zuma after leaving the U.S. in 1960, did not return until 1965. And this is something that Wrestling Clippings, when he did return, make mention of, that he had been retired in Argentina for a few years. But we now have proof, because if he had re-entered the country at some point between 1960 and 1965, his alien file with uh, the U.S. Department of Immigration Services would have had a note of that, and they don't. So Argentina Zuma absolutely, yeah. positively could not have been Mr. Zabo. Take him off the list, baby. Take him off the list. We're running out of wrestlers that fit the profile. As a matter of fact, as part of our, as part of my research, I literally went through every wrestler that was wrestling in a main, in a main territory in January of 1963 and then disappeared for at least February and March because that's when Mr. Zabo was wrestling. And there are literally less than five wrestlers on that list. And one of them is Captain Lou Albano, John. Oh, I think wow. we talked about this in the past. Albano was teaming with Tony that. Altimore in Mid-Atlantic in January of 1963. And then he disappears. Now, I don't think he shows up anywhere for a year. Huh. However, 
I found an article in a newspaper in Asheville, North Carolina around that time that said Albano had suffered a heart attack. Interesting. We also knocked Danny Hodge's name off the list of suspects as we found out he was hospitalized uh, in March of 1963. So we're running out of suspects, but we will answer the question on the next episode of Wrestling History Mysteries. We will unmask Ooh. Mr. Zabo and reveal his identity okay. to the world for the first time publicly ever. To the best of our knowledge, this information has never been part of the, you know, wrestling recorded history. We solved a wrestling history mystery. Now, as for Zuma, um, he, of course, had that huge run in late 1959 and early 1960, uh, selling out the garden, Madison Square Garden, twice against uh, Antonina Rocca, and then a third time drawing over 15,000 fans. And then just months later, tragedy struck and he had to go back to Argentina, stayed there for several years. When he returned, and again, his first matches back in the U.S. were for Lee McGurk. Uh, as I mentioned, he was in some main events feuding with Don Kent, but he's quickly moved down the cards. And, and for the rest of his career, which lasted another decade or so, aside from the occasional main event run, He's generally used a little bit lower on the card. And I would imagine, you know, five years away from wrestling uh, probably affects a lot of things. And and it's very possible that he just was not the same when he came back. But he still had a long career. I think he ended up training a lot of wrestlers that Leroy McGurk broke in uh, years later. Because he worked for Leroy not only in the ring but behind the scenes for many years. And again, this is according to his – files with the U.S. Department of Immigration. Huh. It's like you mentioned, you mentioned that, uh, that uh, the 1959, early 1960 run there in the Northeast. And that's, I don't know, even, even that, that makes, even aside the, all the Mr. Zabo stuff, the idea of Zuma is really interesting because of that. Like, not to get too far off track here, but his like you know his ascent there in the Northeast is sort of a sort of parallel, not coincidentally to that to that of uh, you know Jack Pfeffer gaining more influence and sort of digging his his long creepy fingernails into Madison Square Garden. Yeah, like, and uh, Zuma had worked. A, Zuma worked a lot in Texas uh, at a time when Pfeffer yep. was in with the East Texas promoters. Uh, so yep, again, yep, this yep. is not. not Jack Pfeffer wasn't a booker, but again, another example of when someone has influence in a wrestling territory, he brings his allies with him. So when Pfeffer yeah. gets his uh, fingernails, uh, his hooks <laughs> in somewhere, Zuma was not far behind, uh, but it worked really well for Zuma. And I'm sure the promoters at Madison Square Garden were very happy with two consecutive 20,000 plus sellout crowds to see Zuma and Raka square off. Uh, there's some YouTube footage oh, yeah. of, of uh, Zuma against Maurice Vachon before he was a mad dog. Yeah. It's just a couple of minute clips, but he throws a great drop kick and then he does three amazing flying head scissors. I, it's, I loved watching this brief two minute clip of Zuma and Maurice Vachon. Uh, yeah, that's a th- that's the crazy thing about those three those those three matches at the garden that he did with Raka, like speaking of drop kicks, same finish for all three of the matches. 
Raka drop kicking Zuma through the ropes into the row of press table surrounding the ring. Like the same finish for all three matches. Like Zuma Zuma counted out. Which Jack Zapper, I think, for the third the third match actually wanted to surround the ring with chicken wire. <laughs> but the the state athletic commission wouldn't 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 allow it. And it yeah, sounds, and the finish does sound like funny, but to to, to modern to modern fans, but and the instinct to sort of roll your eyes at the finish being used three consecutive times, but it's not a finish they used like super often in the, like the old Madison Square Garden days. Um, but like it, it's more to do with like the design of the ring and the ringside area because the ring apron at the old MSG, if you see, is like you know, like four, almost like four, maybe five feet out there. It's a really big apron, like a lot bigger than today. And like right up against that was like those press tables with the athletic commission guys, newspaper guys, timekeeper. So if you took a really big bump like Zuma took for Raka, you know, you'd go out and end up on the press table. So you rarely had guys like brawling out on the on the floor or whatever. So it seems it seems a little less less egregious when you put it put it in context or whatever. Yeah, and but, and if we look uh, at the attendance figures that we mentioned, it worked the first time, it didn't work the yeah. second time. So when they did it, you know, when they did it the first time it led to another sellout the following month for the rematch. And then doing the same finish caused the house to drop by about 5,000. So that's our clue that while it was a good finish the first time around, they probably shouldn't have done the same exact thing the second month in a row. Yeah. You know, it's hard to put together feuds uh, with the various stipulation matches. Uh, Our anatomy of a feud for the McGurk territory in the fourth quarter of 1965, looks at the Don Kent and Mike Clancy feud. Uh, in various cities, the, the the stipulation matches that were built to were Texas rules matches, boxing matches, and or steel cage matches. We also list the advertised lineups for all the house shows in the territory during the quarter as well. At this point, we have thousands and thousands of house shows listed on our blog on a quarter by quarter basis. And for the McGurk territory, particularly in the sixties and early seventies, about half of these you will not find anywhere else. And that's uh, one of the great things about this charting the territories project is we've been able to uncover not just stories about Thunderbolt Patterson's early life or, or about Claude Patterson's early life, who may or may not have been Thunderbolt, <laughs> about the early life of Ed Wiskowski and Junkyard Dog and the later lives of Don Diamond and Bobby Jaggers. We're also finding house show records. We're also finding information on title histories that had not previously been documented. So we're slowly but surely filling in so many blanks in the annals of wrestling history. Uh, One of the territories that there really aren't many blanks for is Mid-Atlantic, and that's due to the hard work of the folks at the Mid-Atlantic Gateway. They have done a lot of great work, and I think it's pretty common knowledge among our listeners that George Scott took over as Booker and transformed the territory from a tag team territory to a more of a mix of singles and tags. And the great thing about the statistics I put out, now that we have these frequent partner and frequent opponent metrics, you can literally see the evidence of these changes that George Scott made. Whereas in the third quarter of 1973, every main eventer and every upper mid-carder had one partner that they were teaming with at least half the time. As we go into the fourth quarter, George brings in several newcomers, none of whom 
are part of a regular tag team. Also, Jonathan Boyd and Norman Charles, the Royal Kangaroos, leave. So that's one of the regular tag teams leaving. And another regular tag team, Weaver and Art Nelson, slowly start to team up less and less. So it's just neat to literally see statistics that back up the things that have been said about George Scott and about Mid-Atlantic over time. You can actually see graphical evidence of these things and verify them as fact. We talked about those newcomers. Uh, The first one was the Super Destroyer, and following him were Johnny Valentine, Bobby Bold Eagle, Bob Bruggers, and Bearcat Wright. Now, I think most people talk about Johnny Valentine as being the the main guy that uh, led to the change of philosophy for Mid-Atlantic and led to their uh, emergence as a major territory. But he wasn't the first newcomer. The first newcomer was the Super Destroyer. And at this point in time, the Super Destroyer was Don Jardine under the mask. Don had been working as the spoiler everywhere else. For some reason, Mid-Atlantic wanted him to come in as the destroyer at first. Um, so for a couple of weeks, he's billed as the destroyer. And then uh, once they you know, realize that Dick Beyer is still using that name in Japan, I believe it's Don Jardine that suggests modifying it to the super destroyer, which is what they do. Big fan of the spoiler slash super destroyer, whatever we want to call him. He's, yeah. he's probably, probably one of my uh, 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 top five masked wrestlers of all time, I think, if I have to make a make a quick top five list, he'd be probably two, maybe three. I don't know. But I, I love, love watching him, watching him work. Don was born in the small community of Quarryville in New Brunswick, Canada. I believe its population uh, was probably in numbering in the hundreds, if that. And his family moved to Moncton, a larger city in New Brunswick, when he was two years old. Don wrestled as a youngster. And according to an article that you found in the October 24th, 1959 Calgary Herald, he turned pro at the age of 16. Mm. So yeah, uh, tell, he, uh, yeah, tell us a little more about the, the early days of Don Jardine, as, uh, as was mentioned in this article that we're going to post on yeah. Twitter. Yeah, the article is, is, is more or less, uh, you know, more or less factual the way it's a little 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 embellished here and there but in more or less, the story is very very accurate um it's like i said he grew up in moncton uh like the new brunswick maritimes there uh i was very fortunate um that they had an auditorium in arena the moncton arena mostly for 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 hockey and other other canadian endeavors uh most of the time but uh, you know, a lot of these Canadian maritime promotions uh, would run only in the summer. Uh, but from May to September, they would run all all these towns weekly. And Jardine and his uh, his brother Herb there are regulars, and the stadium was walking distance from their childhood home. It's like a little kid's dream, right? Yeah. Um, and the only the only problem is that seeing wrestling week week in week out can get expensive, right? So Don and Don and Herb being the resourceful children that they are, start offering to carry the wrestlers' bags in, you know, exchange for admittance to the show. And, you know, fast forward a few years and Don's early teens and he's like a huge kid, like already over six feet tall. 
Uh, and Dupre, you know, noted in later later interviews that Don had big muscular legs and just told Don to start working out, bulk up the upper body. Don hits the weights and comes back a year later, and uh, uh, Emil Dupre agrees to train him at the local YMCA, and he began to ring, working in the ring locally at like 15 years old, like you said. The big break that they mention in the in the in the article here is actually when Don meets Whipper Billy Watson. And it's actually at a, a char- charity event at a local department store. Uh, and Watson was so impressed with young Don Jardine. Uh, and a little while later, in 1959, I think, Don gets a telegram from the Toronto office. And, you know, he shows the telegram to Emile Dupree. And Don just thought they wanted him to give him some, like, free tickets to the to the wrestling show. <laughs> and Dupree was like, Explains are like, no, dude, they, they want you to come wrestle at the Maple Leaf Garden. Uh, and that was the beginning of, uh, you know, Babyface Jardine, as he was known at the time. And you can you can see Babyface Jardine in that in the article called Clean Shaven Jardine. Yeah. And, and prior to uh, wrestling in Toronto, and this would probably while he was still wrestling, you know, seasonally or part time in New Brunswick, uh, Don worked as a lineman with the New Brunswick Telephone Company. And for our younger listeners, a lineman, those are literally the guys that climbed the telephone poles to repair the, li- the, the phone lines that yeah. were crisscrossing the world back in the day before cellular <laughs> technology made uh, you know, the, these phone lines obsolete. But he was a lineman. In fact, I didn't know this until recently. The uh, famed Glenn Campbell song, Wichita Lineman. I'm not a country fan, so I never heard the song, but I'd heard of the song. I assumed it was about a football player. It's not. Uh. It's about a telephone <laughs> repairman. Uh. It's funny because his name, Babyface Jardine, you know that he was using at that time. More specifically, the 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 face part uh, was was sort of a problem. Like he he just like his face, like he just looked like a nice guy. Like he didn't look like a mean guy. Like I don't know really. I don't really know how to say it. He wasn't like a he wasn't a bad looking guy. He was a handsome guy. He just he just didn't have a lot of character or, or 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 personality in his face, and this is sort of like the root of the problem for him for the better part of the next ten years. Uh, you know, aside from like he had a run in Los Angeles, I think, as Butcher Jardine. He had the beard and the you know black glove. Another West Coast run, I think, as one of the masked enforcers. And his career is sort of like lacking uh, lacking color up to this point. And it's fine. This is not where. He thinks his career should be at this point, you know, with his skill, excellent in ring worker and his size. Um, and it's like, and even later in his career, he, 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 he butted heads really easily <laughs> and frequently, sometimes literally with promoters and bookers. And I think some of these negative experiences with promoters, in his formative years likely led to having that standoffishness, like being like jerked around or whatever. Like was it Dutch Savage? You ever hear this story, the Dutch Savage story? No. About Amarillo? Oh God, he's uh he's teaming with Jardine and Amarillo. And there's some sort of like locker room confrontation between Jardine and Dory Funk Sr. This is a pre spoiler, he's still does Don Jardine. Um I think it was sixty six, I wanna say. Um, where uh Funk Senior slapped Jardine, who is a huge man, like build at like six seven. He's probably like a legit six four six five, and Jardine just cold cocks him. The funk goes down, and Jardine's on top of him, like trying to pummel him. So everybody's pulling off Jardine, 
And, you know, uh, Savage says they, they just like left the ter- territory like right then and there. Like they were sure Funk was going to have like the sheriff or worse <laughs> after them. So they just like jumped in their cars and headed for the New Mexico border. Yeah, you could have gotten <laughs> Don Slatton, the lawman after yeah, him. Well, yeah, lawman, <laughs> baby. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you're talking about Don, his reputation and his feeling about promoters. There's an article on slam wrestling. We'll put a link to that. But uh, it says in the article, in North America, he worked a plethora of territories, in part because he had a notoriously short fuse with promoters. The longest places he stayed were Texas and North Carolina, and that was just two years. Promoters should be hung up by their testicles in the main square and drawn and quartered, (laughs) he told Canadian (laughs) Championship Wrestling. Booker's next to them because they lie and cheat for the promoters. Yeah, it's it's, it's <laughs> like, thank God for Gary Hart. Gary, you know, I think for what Gary Hart did for, for his career. Um, I think Gary Hart had been working for like Fritz and Paul Bosch and he and Fritz were just throwing around names for guys for Gary to bring in. And Fritz suggested Jardine. Hart was into it. I think he actually crossed paths with Jardine in Amarillo. Um, before the <laughs> the locker room episode, um, it took some convincing to get Jardine committed because Jardine, like you said, uh, you know, but Hart was very persuasive. And, and, and Gary Hart in his book, he talks about how at this time he's really into a comic book character, the Phantom, who wore this like purple bodysuit and a mask and he like lived in the jungle or something. Uh, he's a big agile guy who would like swing through trees and stuff. And this is what he had envisioned for Jardine. Uh, and Jardine was like super into the idea and super into wearing the mask. Uh, I actually have like a, a spoiler beer koozie that I got from his website years ago. And it has the has mask, the eagle design on one side and the phantom of the ring on the other, which is kind of cool callback to the phantom. Uh, and he just looked awesome in the freaking mask and the tights, long tights and the singlet. You know, a few months ago, we talked about how the assassin mask really transforms Jody Hamilton into the sort of like mild manner looking like schlubby guy into a monster. Same with the spoiler master Jardine just makes him look like such a badass. Um, and then, then, then uh, Hart wanted to go one further and have the spoiler uses the claw, which is of course Fritz's finisher. So Fritz naturally doesn't want to do it. But again, Gary Hart being the persuasive guy that he is uh, pitches that the spoiler should wear a glove and that the announcers could speculate as to whether the spoiler's claw was more powerful than Fritz's because of the glove. So Fritz agrees to that along with, well, as long as like they don't call it the iron claw, it had to be called the Gary Hart claw. So, yeah, I think it was called the <laughs> like Hart's Crusher at first. Hart's Crusher. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's great. And it's, it's like the way he describes as being his manager for, for Jardine's spoiler. It's almost in the same sense, you know, the way that Ellering would talk about the Road Warriors, like handle the bookings, you know, set up, handle the interviews, negotiated finishes back and forth, you know. So it was very, you know, and then they were together for what, like 20 years almost, yeah, yeah on and off, on and yeah, off. But yeah, so. from from there until you know the mid 80s in world class, they're they're together. Yeah. Um, Spoiler had several runs for Lira McGurk. Uh, Gary Hart was along for some of them, including his first run in 1970, where he held the North American title. And during this reign, 
something happened that led to an almost certainly fictitious article in the January 1971 issue of The Wrestler with the uh, headline, The Legal Battle That Can Revolutionize Wrestling. And it involved the determination of a wealthy mother to ensure her son's constitutional rights to earn a living. Basically, the gist is that Gary Hart was suspended. uh, His manager's license was suspended and his wealthy mother sued the NWA to get Gary Hart reinstated. So, John, any other fascinating lines from this almost certainly completely fake and made up article from The Wrestler? Oh, let me scroll through here. Oh God! There's. <laughs> it's a goldmine. I wonder, and I wonder if it was written by uh, our, our friend George Napolitano under one of his many aliases. Although I guess this was this was the wrestler, and I don't know if he was working for uh, Weston at the time, but could could be. That is one of my favorite parts about posting some of those articles. Is like Napolitano will will pop in, it's like, oh yeah, I wrote that. That was me. Yeah, and even, even though every article has a different name, you know, credited as the writer, they were all George, much in the same way, you know, that that Apter uh, had several, you know, nom de plumes uh, in, in yeah. the magazines later on. <laughs> I mean, just one of the captions for Gary Hart. Uh, <laughs> Playboy Gary Hart is an arrogant man who takes pride in the large number of enemies he has. I hate most people, he admits, <laughs> and they hate me. <laughs> but, he added, that's because very few people understand me and the things I'm after. I run deep, man. I run very deep. <laughs> Gary Hart, one of wrestling's all-time characters in a business filled with them. Now, you know, there oh, are yeah. there are, you know, legends and myths in pro wrestling, of course, According to the WWF in uh, at WrestleMania three, Hogan was the first person ever to body slam Andre the Giant, and of course we all know that is not true. He was probably not even the tenth man to slam Andre. There was probably at least a dozen before him. But one of the things I always thought, and I don't know if I ever read this specifically or not, or just assumed, of all the mass wrestlers, at some point down the line they eventually lose their mask. I always yep. believed that the spoiler was never unmasked. John, did, did you share this belief? No, I did not. I did not know that. I did not know that the spoiler spoiler was a uh, never unmasked. Well, that that's because it's no. not true. <laughs> Again, like I said, I just like I said, I don't think I ever read anywhere aside from perhaps in an after mag or a you know a kayfabe yeah. source. But in 1972. When the spoiler is wrestling in East Texas, uh, it likely happened in more than one town, but he was feuding with Jose Lothario and for sure in San Antonio on July 5th, 1972, spoiler lost a hair versus mask match to Lothario. And the next day's newspaper reports that spoiler indeed was unmasked and found to be Don Jardine in everyday life. So it wasn't even, you know, they unmask him and he quickly, you know, hides his head and runs away. He was unmasked and identified in the middle of the ring, which is something I never knew about the spoiler, Don Jardine. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, the, 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 since they're talking about Mid-Atlantic, I think there was a, 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 a similar but not accurate story about how he left uh, the Mid-Atlantic territory where he left. 
uh, on bad terms, uh, just unplanned. Uh, I, I guess um, I've, I've read it was you know a, a dispute with uh, George Scott actually, and he, he left left the territory suddenly, and because they were so upset with him, uh, they put it out in all their all their magazines and all the papers that he was unmasked and revealed to be Don Jardine, and that the person who did the unmasking was Rufus R. Jones, and Jardine was apparently very upset by this. Not because it revealed who he was, but because he didn't consider Rufus R. Jones to have been the person to have, you know, kayfabe unmasked him, which I thought was interesting. It says, you know, just interesting insight into someone's yeah. someone's psyche there. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You can see the rest of the Mid-Atlantic roster. During the corridor on our blog, it includes it includes a few wrestlers we talked about earlier in the podcast when we were covering 1965 and 1977. Sweet Hansen, Amazing Zuma, who's Argentina Zuma, Doug Summers, Thunderbolt Patterson. You'll also see a young Ed Wiskowski, Bobby Shane, the future Iron Sheik, who's there as a rookie, Ali Vaziri, and another rookie who earned his stripes by accepting Bob Roop's grandstand challenge earlier in the year, and that's Don Kernodal. Uh, of course, yeah. Kernodal was an amateur wrestler at Elon, I believe at Elon College in uh, Central North Carolina, and was brought in to uh, answer Bob Roop's grandstand challenge that he was doing on TV, or he said he could beat, you know, he could beat any, you know, any non-wrestler. And Kernodal uh, did end up ta- uh, losing, uh, being submitted, but he did so well that according to Don, only pretty much offered him on the spot to train him as a wrestler and told him to show up the the next Monday uh, at the office in Charlotte. And the rest, as they say, is history. So yeah, Don Kernodal, this was his uh, first uh, time as a regular in in pro wrestling. Of course, we sadly lost Don Kernodal earlier this year. uh, And his brother gave a really moving and emotional speech uh, at the Tregos Thez induction ceremony that I was at in Iowa. Uh, and uh, Thunderbolt Patterson was there as well. And Thunderbolt ah. was also at the Cauliflower Alley Club. So we talked about Thunderbolt Patterson earlier in the podcast. He is still making the rounds in the various Hall of Fames and conventions and reunions. So perhaps if you get a chance to meet him, you can ask him about the year 1962 and his thoughts <laughs> now. And again, like I said, you know, it sure reads to me like he may have been headed in a certain direction and, and pro wrestling may very well have saved his life. So and hooray for pro wrestling. And, and of that, course, uh, I'm know, gonna, that one solicitation. Yeah. yeah. The solicitation charge seems like the only time uh, Thunderbolt hasn't been able to uh, talk people into the house. <laughs> <laughs> Zing! Sorry, sorry, I had to make it. I had, had to make that joke. I've been working on that one for the last 40 minutes. On that high note, I think we should end this podcast like George Costanza on Seinfeld. When you uh, when you hit that high, you just need to end it right then and there and leave them wanting more. So next month on the podcast, John, we are going to look at the fourth quarter of 1973 in Leora McGurk's territory. Now, in 1977, we had two turns in the fourth quarter, Murdoch and Dr. X, but we have a big turn in 1973. In fact, it's probably it's probably the biggest turn in the territory up to that point in time. 
and it establishes the man who would be one of the top main event heels for Leroy for the following year and a half. We also see local promoter Leonard Clay switch his allegiances from Leroy McGurk to a surprising new source of talent. Perhaps Leonard was looking for a little Georgia Clay. We'll also see some new heel tag teams come in, including two Tyler brothers, two Bass brothers who bring their maw with them, and a mass tag team featuring a future member of the Midnight Express under one of the hoods. So that will all be part of our coverage of 1973. We're also going to cover the fourth quarter of 1965 for Leroy McGurk, which features the returns of Danny Hodge, Bill Watts, and Sputnik Monroe, and perhaps the most Don Fargoist Don Fargo story ever. If anyone ever asked me, explain in one paragraph or less what Don Fargo is, or who Don Fargo was, or what he was about, this story that happens in the fourth quarter of 1965 is the perfect summation of Don Fargo. We're also going to talk about a title change that may not have been a title change unless it was a title change. That's another part of 1965. And we're going to head out west to take a special look at a territory we haven't yet charted. So I guess, John, that means we will be entering uncharted territory (laughs) next month on the podcast. Plus, on Thursday, December 10th, the next episode of Wrestling History Mysteries comes out. It's going to be part four of The Curious Case of Mr. Zabo, in which we speak to the only two men still alive who were in the territory when Mr. Zabo was there in early 1963. Dear listener, I promise you we will definitively unmask Mr. Zabo and reveal his identity. After months and months of working on this mystery and doing research and dragging in John and Brian Lass and Tim Hornbaker and Tom Burke and countless other notable wrestling historians, I can say to some degree of certainty, this information has never before been publicly documented. Folks, we have solved a mystery and we're going to reveal it on Thursday, December 10th. As always, we hope you, our listener, have learned some new things this month. I know both John and I continue to learn new things the more we research. And that leads us to our closing feature of the podcast. And that is where both John and I share with you one new thing we learned. So, John, tell our listeners, what did you learn this month? Oh, well, so so looking at, you know, Jardine this month, doing like the, the, the deep dive into the spoiler and Don Jardine, Super D. Uh, I got a little sidetracked uh, with the unmasked spoiler working for the WWWF in 1972. And the reasons why this was a thing, specifically at Madison Square Garden. Uh, You know, guys like El Olympico, the the rugged Russians, both of whom we've discussed on the show previous months, normally work with masks, would wear those goofy masks with like just a face cut out. Uh, Jardine, as far as I've, I've seen, all, all the photos I've seen from the territory at the time was just no mask, just, 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 just maskless. Um, so I just want to know, like, what, what is the deal? What is the deal with MSG and the mask? Um, so it turns out it was actually because an obscure New York penal law passed in New York City in 1845 
This is a New York Penal Law 240, uh, 35, subsection 4, and I quote, being masked or in any manner disguised by unusual or unnatural or attire or facial alteration, loiters, remains, or congregates in public place with other persons so masked or disguised or knowingly permits or aids persons so masked or disguised to congregate in a public place, except that such conduct is not unlawful when it occurs in connection with a masquerade party or lake entertainment if when such entertainment is held in a city which has promulgated regulations in connection with such affairs, permission is first obtained from the police or other appropriate authorities. So that is the reason why they did not have masked wrestlers in Madison Square Garden. So I thought this was maybe like a, a, a law uh, for a way for them to sort of legally keep the, the, the Ku, Klux, Ku Klux Klan from Ku Klux Klanning, you know, publicly. Right. without violating their right to free speech or whatever. Um, but actually, the intent of the law was to discourage armed uprisings by tenant farmers in the Hudson Valley who were wearing disguises and attacking law enforcement officers, which I thought was super oh, interesting. Fascinating. Now, you reading that law out gave me a Thanksgiving flashback to the uh, most famous <laughs> song about Thanksgiving. John, would you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Oh, Alice's Restaurant. Yes. yes. Uh, yeah. Technically, the song is Alice's Restaurant Massacre. Massacre. Mass yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. Uh, but yes, at one point in that song, he, uh, he he talks about a police officer reading off some law. Uh, and you reading you off that law in New York reminded me of that. So that's what John learned this month. As far as for what I learned this month, uh, you know, last month, we did the interview with Gil Culkin, and we were discussing his roster that he and his father used when they split from McGurk and how multiple black wrestlers were used up and down the cards, not just in that typical spot where they would uh, territories would have a black wrestler as the upper mid card or, or a main event babyface, but not the top babyface. But the Culkins were using wrestlers in the main events, in the mid cards, prelims, baby faces, heels. They had a very diverse roster. And it just sort of got me wondering what, you know, who was the first black wrestler to work as a heel in the South? Hmm. And I don't know the definitive answer of, I think this is probably the earliest one. And it also depends on what your definition of the South is, but it's someone we've talked about in depth on this episode of the podcast. In oh. 1967, in Amarillo, Thunderbolt Patterson worked as a huh. heel, feuding with the Funks, teaming with other heels such as the Medics, Harley Race, and Brute Bernard. There's a funny story about this. Uh, Thunderbolt had been working for uh, in Central Station for the AWA, and apparently Geigel called him in and said, Dory Funk was looking for an Indian wrestler. And Geigel, straight-faced and apparently completely serious, asked Thunderbolt if he could work as an Indian. And just like an actor who's at, who, who is told you need to, you know, ballet dance or ride a horse for this role, can you do that? Thunderbolt said, absolutely, I can do that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and so... Imagine the surprised look on Dory Funk Sr.'s face when oh. Thunderbolt Patterson came walking in to the dressing room in Amarillo. So he clearly was not used as an Indian, but he was used as a heel. 
Uh, he did turn babyface before leaving the territory during that run. But then again, in 1970, while in Florida, Thunderbolt Patterson, who had been a babyface in Florida, he turned heel in March and had a feud with Jose Lothario. He feuded a little bit with Jack Briscoe, and he teamed up with Heels, the Missouri Mauler, and the Great Malenko. Now, as with Amarillo, he did turn babyface after about six months. And that's not all. In the summer of 1971, Thunderbolt turned heel in East Texas. This is uh, uh, not just Dallas-Fort Worth, Fritz's area, but also at this time, Paul Bosch was pretty much exclusively booking his talent through Fritz's office. So it was Houston as well. Thunderbolt turned heel there and was billed as King Thunderbolt Patterson, doing a King gimmick. So if we go with the you know story of wrestling saving his life and uh, you know altering his career path, literally this man went from being a pimp to being a king, all yeah, because of professional wrestling. Hallelujah to pro wrestling. Yes, yeah, hallelujah indeed. Now, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. Uh, we will post links to many of the articles and YouTube clips we talked about on this episode of the podcast. We'll also post some great pictures from John Boucher's personal collection, as well as some scans of some of the magazine articles we talked about, including Gary Hart's mother fighting for her son's <laughs> constitutional rights to be a heel professional wrestling manager, yeah. which is, hey, I, I, I believe in those rights as well, because I was one for many years. As a matter of fact, I believe yeah. we are actually recording this podcast on the six-year anniversary of the last time I ever worked as a professional wrestling manager, which was the night I broke my leg in four places oh, in Barnesville, Georgia. Six years ago, if not today, within the, within a couple of days of that time. Uh, so uh, catch me at Al Gets Wrestling. Check out our blog, chartingtheterritories.com. John, uh, anything you would like to plug or anything you want to tell our listeners that you are thankful for. Uh, I'm thankful for you, Al. I'm thankful for the listeners as well. Anyone who's listening, thank you for finding us on our new feed. Thank you for everyone who has messaged me on Twitter privately or publicly saying, Hey, do you guys still have a podcast? And then I send the link and you go listen to it. Thank you so much. Um, find me on Twitter at John underscore Boucher. Um, I have more AW on AWA UWA reels being transferred as we speak five episodes. So I should have those hopefully, hopefully in time for Christmas. I'll have those up on, on my, on my YouTube there. So that'll be coming up soon. Hopefully. Well, that would be a great Christmas gift for all the good little boys and girls out in wrestling land. <laughs> yes. You'll hear me again the second week of December with my wrestling history mysteries podcast. And you'll hear both John and I, in about a month, the fourth week of December, the fourth Thursday, to be exact. And to be the first to know when these new podcasts are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and check us out at chartingtheterritories.com. On behalf of myself and John Boucher, happy Thanksgiving. As we enter the holiday season, I would like to reiterate what John said. We truly are thankful for each and every one of our listeners. Be well, be happy, be healthy, and we will see you guys next month. Hallelujah.